by focusing on this, you know, fuzzy theory about the future of the world, they miss the applications that are going to build it as a base. Don't confuse the trend with reality because the market today is what it is today and that's the whole application. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing as a function has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hey, everybody. Thanks for being here. Marketing podcast with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. And you? All right. You had a bunch of really good topics. So let's get started. There was a big piece of news with Amazon. Yeah, this one surprised me. I haven't had my ear to the ground on Amazon well enough. But this week, Amazon announced that they're closing all of their bookstores and their four-star stores. And I was quite surprised by this. Not that I was a fan of all those pieces, but I was surprised because I think Amazon needs to have a future in brick and mortar, but they decided to close them and they've announced that they're all all shutting up. So the question is, was this a smart idea because the data said so, or was it not a smart idea because the data didn't say everything? I don't know. And that's what uh, yeah, we don't know at this point. And I don't know mm. anybody inside Amazon that could give me the scoop. However, having done a lot of direct selling, and that includes internet selling, there's a tendency in direct selling to get addicted to the numbers and get too focused on exactly what's easily measurable. And we've always found that being in a store had a tremendous amount of impact for you that you couldn't quite measure. It's tough stuff to really put numbers to, but the impact is there. Studies do show across retail that anytime a retailer closes a store in a zip code or that serves a zip code, the online sales for that zip code drop. And that's an indication of, you know, that there's a secondary impact from that store being present. I mean, every time you drive by that Lowe's, you get a little bit of a memory boost about Lowe's and that increases enough to increase your purchases from Lowe's online. So I, I mean, first I would be concerned that Amazon wasn't measuring well, wasn't really thinking well about it. Exactly. As you say, we all know that every sale, whether it's mundane or important, requires multiple touches. And I think there is a very good case to be made that a physical touch is a much richer experiential touch than a digital impression. Mm -hmm. So it may be one impression, but I think it counts more. And if you can get it right at the right cost, you're golden. Of course, the other thing that everybody wants to do is to go to digital because it allegedly is better, faster, cheaper, and mm -hmm. and reality doesn't always bear that out. No, it doesn't. Actually, uh, Kevin Hillstrom has done some really, he has a set of books out, short books that are self-published and they're available through Amazon, but he's specialized in online sales and catalog sales his entire career and does some really good analysis showing that, in fact, selling through a retailer is slightly more cost-effective than selling online, and that there's a, a set of reasons for that. I mean, I always talk to my classes and say, okay, when somebody goes into the store, goes up to a shelf and puts your product into their cart, they have done the pick and pack. Whereas if you order it online, you're paying somebody to do the pick and pack. So the retailer has to pay somebody if it's online, whereas in the store, the consumer does it. The consumer does the last mile transportation from a store. It's the most expensive part, yeah. Yeah, I mean, last mile's this big old problem for everybody. Everybody, yeah. And when it's in a store, a consumer does that. And so there's, there's trade-offs. It's not that everything's right or wrong. They should live in, you know, unity. 
So I guess that's, that may be a surprise. I also have some feeling that Amazon may not have delivered on the store as well. I, I certainly never in their bookstore got a feeling like there was depth. It felt like they'd kind of skimmed to the surface of best-selling books. And that felt really shallow to me as a bookstore. Yeah, that's true. You don't go to a store to see something you've already seen before. You go there to almost to discover a little bit, mm -hmm. right? Unless really the only value is logistics and inventory, and you're just going to go pick up the same carton of milk as last week, right? Right. That's not discovery. But even then, while you're doing that, you may see something else that's a discovery for you. Of course, I'm spoiled on bookstores because I live in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, right. Pals, you know, <laughs> so I'm really spoiled. I love bookstores. But I will say my shopping habit is if I know exactly what I want and I want to get it now, I order off Amazon. But if I want to explore what to get in a topic or in literature or wherever, I go to Pals because I hate that what I call shopping as opposed to buying. I hate shopping online, but I love buying online. So, Well, a destination, nevertheless, for everybody seems to be to try to push the envelope on what you can do in a digital way that you used to do in a physical way. Right. And that is a good segue into metaverse because that's the promised land of all physical activity blended seamlessly with all the digital activity. And maybe someday we will get there. But the present state of the market is lacking. Now, I understand you had an exercise in your classroom about this that I'm very eager to hear about. Yeah, I have all my students do, um, in my first year marketing course, do a uh, term paper, which is a marketing plan, kind mm -hmm. of throw them into the deep end. You know, I love doing that. But one of the teams, one of the groups came back and they did a presentation on the metaverse. And I've talked with them along the way. And their thinking is really interesting because they look at it and they're concerned about what Facebook or Meta or whoever we want to call them is putting forth about the metaverse because their advertising campaign, which they showed last night uh, for the metaverse, is this kind of fantasy, like I'm going to one of those immersive exhibits of Van Gogh. Uh -huh. And, you know, that's nice, but they, they suggest that that's not where the real power of the metaverse is. I'm reminded because I feel like I've seen this act before, seen this, this show before. Google Glass, when it came out, was going to be everything. And so Google talked about all this. Everybody's going to be wearing them all around town. And Segway was going to revolutionize transportation. And it ends up being, you know, what happens that I can am concerned about for Meta is by focusing on this, you know, fuzzy theory about the future of the world, they miss the applications that are going to build it as a base. Because I hear that there are good applications for virtual reality right now that should be part of Meta, and they can team with people to do them. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure because they're so big, I'm sure they're working on those too. But it is interesting that those are not what's being highlighted in the ad. Mm -hmm. And the ad is painting the nirvana sometime in the future, whereas yeah. some real applications right now may be more effective. Because clearly in gaming, well, that's already been kind of right. metaverse mm -hmm. for a good while. You know, those of us who came from an HPC supercomputing background, immersive graphics has been around in the scientific engineering world for a good long while. Yeah. yeah. Factory automation is very poised and will use it properly. But also things like fitness and both mental and physical fitness. So there are real apps that they could focus on. I think so. I think the reason I worry about their advertising approach is very often where the advertising is reflects where the company's head is, where their mental focus is. So instead of focusing on the metaverse as a practical thing to build around starting applications 
that prove its viability, then other people say, well, that's cool. I want to get it. Right, right. So for example, it can be used for military training. Well, that's pretty good. You know, that's actually right. not a bad idea. Very practical. It lets you have your troops fire and hurt without anybody getting hurt, you know, and there's, there's actually really are serious ways that it could be valuable in that or medical uh, procedures for people to train for or prepare for, or if there's a big surgery to mock it up ahead of time so that when it comes, you're ready for it. You know, there's all kinds of those types of applications, touring real estate. A lot of retailers are beginning to use it for store layouts. So you can do a new store layout and then walk in and say, how does this feel without having to do the cost of building it and the time to build it. So as always, you know, simulation, computer simulation should save you time help you get things more accurate, all these kinds of things. Right, right. But instead, they're focused on bringing art to life, which was what their commercial was about. And right. that worries me for Meta, because I think that's a, a bad place to go. I mean, we laugh at Segway, but we laugh at Segway very heavily because they told us that everybody was going to own one and that mm. downtowns would be different forever. And so we laugh at them because we know that that we now could clearly see they were full of it. And Google Glass, I, I understand. Actually, I did read a story that some of the engineers at Google were pretty frustrated with how Google took over what they felt needed to be developed for surgery to help disabled people who needed the assistance or, you know, there are all these good values and uses. And instead, it was going to be a way to track your stock prices while walking down the street. Right, right. No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the message really is focus on the use case. Mm -hmm. And another way that I say this is that don't confuse the trend with reality. <laughs> don't confuse the trend with reality because the market today is what it is today. And that's all the applications and the use cases. Is this also a case that for some in tech, it's not enough to be a highly effective tool? Right. Because what are computers? They're tools, tools that we use to live life, make life better. But it seems almost like you look at this and you feel like, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg wants to be something more than a tool, I guess, you know. Well, you know, occasionally you get lucky and you have a technology that is very wide ranging and far reaching. And that's great. But I think there is definitely a problem in my mind in the startup world where everyone is compelled to have to change the world, to have to put a dent in the universe, to have to be a platform, to have to be insightful and interesting every other day, not like, you know, every six months. And I think that's just a tall order. It's just not reality. So there is, in fact, a pretty good market opportunity to go be a feature rather than a product. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to go, right. to go, go be a product be... rather than an ecosystem. To, if, right? if you're a tool that the U.S. military, you know, uses to save thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives, you know, why would you want more? There's some really good success stories where it's really pretty simple. Like, what do yeah. you do? Well, we do this. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. And. <laughs> You know, you got a great business doing that. So, yeah, yeah, I think that if it comes naturally and if there is an opportunity to do it for real, then awesome. But mm -hmm. I think when you try to force fit a product mm -hmm. into a vision, then it may not really quite work, right? That's actually Zuckerberg succeeded by developing Facebook as a, a narrow marketed niche app targeted to college students. And we don't have to go into all the details, but targeted to college students. And then it exploded as other people said, oh, that looks really good. I want to use that too. 
Exactly. And, you know, kind of it's sad that he can't return to his fundamental understanding about what made them successful. Well, I think the plan now is to turn it into the metaverse where all these interactions take place. And frankly, I think they're right. I think that is a great vision to have. And I think it's great to have the first mover advantage on it, so to say. Mm -hmm. And they've got wherewithal to do it. So all of that is great. And by the way, we have to remember that when you have your goggles on, you're not on your phone. So all your data, all your time Uh is really being spent, not with the traditional vendors, but with the new vendor. And that's also very significant. So if you missed out on the laptop, if you missed out on the appliances around the house, and if you missed out on the mobile phone, capturing the metaverse ongoing basis is not a bad idea. So the other topic that came up this past week was outsourcing. Okay, so J.P. Caslin wrote about this, but also he and I communicate fairly often. I sent him this article from Boeing. And the article was published back around 2001, 2002 by a Boeing engineer at almost the identical time when the Boeing CEO declared that the 787 would be outsourced primarily. A lot more than before anyway, right? A lot more than before. The article said, when you outsource, you're at high risk of outsourcing profits because you lose the ability, the skill set, you lose the knowledge base, you lose a lot of things when you outsource. And then, of course, there's the risks that Boeing ran into, which is you also may be outsourcing to people who don't know how to do it. You know, the 787 disaster they had or catastrophe or whatever we want to call it. We can look for bigger words if we want. That is a result of a mistake in outsourcing. But so that's fundamentals. So in agreement with you, I think that the whole point of outsourcing is whether you build or you buy or perhaps you buy and customize. So those are really the three fundamental choices. If you're outsourcing, you're buying rather than building. If you're buying, then what do you buy? You buy things that you don't know how to do. You don't have a prayer of knowing how to do. Like you don't build your own phone system. You just go get it from the telcos. Mm -hmm. You don't build your own car. Or you do things that you know how to do, but don't have the time to do. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that somebody else can do it better and faster and cheaper. The second thing is always outsource for quality, not for cost. If you outsource for cost, you end up compromising quality. Now, if you don't have a prayer of doing it yourself anyway, well, then it's both. If you're outsourcing something that you know how to do, then you can assess the quality of it. In fact, one of my big rules in marketing is everything that we offer as a company, at least once we have done it ourselves. And if you don't have a prayer of doing it, then you try to do it, try and buy, so you get a feel for it. You have to do research, you have to put it for competitive bid, et cetera, et cetera. So that to me are the big rules. And within marketing anyway, my advice to my staff has always been, don't outsource things that you don't know how to do because then you can't arbitrate. Our CEO, Scott McNeely, in the old days, he would pretend he's hammering a nail in. He says, if you're doing that, you can outsource it. And he would put his hand under his chin like as if he's in deep thought. And he said, if you're doing this, you can't outsource that. Don't outsource your thinking, outsource your doing. So that's another way. We can outsource the muscle, but not the brain. I think one of the challenges in outsourcing, from what I read, is when in the 70s we started down the path of shareholder value becoming the single worshipped fact of corporations due to some economic bad thinking. Um, (laughs) One of the things I read that happened a lot is that outsourcing became very popular because of that, because it became a quick way for CEOs to make their numbers. 
and to deliver something to the shareholders because they could take costs off the books. Exactly. Right. And it, that was really great. But unfortunately, the incentive that the idea of shareholder value gave was an incentive to these CEOs to have fundamentally destroy their long term in favor of getting some short-term gain for it. And I think that that's what happened to Boeing, is they outsourced a lot of stuff that they should have continued to be the experts in. Well, that's the other thing. When you outsource, you change your business model yeah. because you mm -hmm. just exited a particular market. So ultimately, it turns you into just a brand that you put a label on something and that's your entire value add. And if that's what you're doing, then you're a brand licensing shop. <laughs> that's really all you are. Yeah, you're not really no longer really operating those. Yeah. But I understand that you know, I know why it's so tough for people. I think, you know, I was reminded in in your first discussion there that you introduced me to the idea of project debt. You know, the idea that as you make these choices, you're often the compromises you make up front in a project have to be paid off at some point because That's you're right. incurring a debt. And that that debt will come due at some point. And I think that that's one of the things people didn't think about with outsourcing is that when you outsource, you incur a project debt potential. Right, right. Unless that's really part of your business model. Like we cannot do our own phone. We're going to ask some big telco to do it. Yeah, it's funny. I can, I've worked on the other end of this with retailers as they bring out some of their own products under their private label brands. And it's interesting to see the other side where you start realizing that retailers, I mean, what retailers know how to do is curate, if you will, bring together big batches of products, put them in a display where people are motivated, have a traffic scheme that gets people into the store and out of the store and run this whole thing. And then when they get into having their own private label, all of a sudden they're put in the position of being product people for specific right. products instead of being product people for what's the mix in my department. Do I have the right range of tools? And it can be really challenging for them because it's a really very different thing to have to learn. I think one of the things we underestimate in business is the value of having learned things. Well, the, the institutional knowledge, yeah. You know, what happens is once you get to a certain point in institutional knowledge, Brian Arthur's theory of increasing returns, kind of, that's really it. That once, you know, once VHS had learned all the skills for getting in the market, getting the distribution, they were so far ahead of Sony, not in technology, but in terms of... <laughs> what it took to succeed. Okay, so we're going to have to come back to this topic because okay. this whole VHS Betamax is huge. But, <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> well, I but thought, you, you know, yeah, let's do that. Are, are you telling me it's taxes, religion, and Betamax? Is that what we're dealing with here? <laughs> oh, I think it's, it's a great analogy for a lot of different things in technology. Yeah. So let's conclude this episode here. Thank you. Yes. Thank you all for listening. That keeps us going. So please do so. Please uh, rate, like, review all the right things and uh, give us some feedback. Thank you. Take care. All right. Sounds great, Shaheen. See you. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.